Well, we're turning again to Luke's Gospel this morning and to Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you or if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 24. You'll find our reading this morning on page 868 and then just one verse over on 869. So most of our reading this morning is on Pew Bible, page 868. And we're reading Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24 together. Quite a long section, but it's all tied together. And uh, we're going to be thinking about this passage later in our service. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, reading to verse 24. And this is God's word to us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking. What they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over the power of the enemy... <coughs> And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father. <coughs> Excuse me. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. You'll find it on page 868 of our Pew Bibles. Page 866, 868. 
Uh, and as you're turning to that passage, uh, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be with us by your spirit and that you would help us to pour out our lives in service of the Lord Jesus. Help us to have a passion to tell other people about him. And we pray that you'd speak to those who aren't yet trusting in Jesus as well. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, and we're going to be thinking about the first half of chapter 10. The the first half of this chapter tells us about the importance of evangelism. And you might have heard that word or concept, but it's been a while since you thought about what it means for you in your own context. Very, Very simply, evangelism is the spreading of the gospel through preaching or personal witness. And one of the fundamental purposes of our new building is that through it, we'll have opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. Our new building will give us a space that is on the one hand warm and welcoming and on the other easy for a new person to come into. But there's a problem. We're not very good at doing evangelism. It's helpful at this point to think about what evangelism isn't. So evangelism isn't talking to someone who doesn't come to church about our church, the minister or our new building might be a good way into a conversation about the gospel, but if it doesn't go any further than those things, if the conversation doesn't move on any further than those things, it's information about our church, not evangelism. I I, I would guess that most of our conversations about spiritual things with people scratch the surface and skirt around the main thing, the gospel itself. Now, we have to acknowledge that evangelism is hard. It's very difficult to share your faith in depth with someone that you know and love, with someone that you work with, and even with someone that you've never met. But Luke 10 is a passage all about evangelism and being honest with people about spiritual things. We're going to see in this passage, what we're going to see in this passage is the root and reason and motivation for evangelism. Why does the church emphasize personal evangelism? Believers telling other people who don't believe about the Lord Jesus well, Luke 10 goes some way in explaining why. As I've already said, we're, we're back in Luke's gospel. We're in Luke's gospel uh, in our morning services at the moment. We've had two Sundays already so far. We're going to take a short break from it next week because we're moving into the period of our eldership election. We're going to take four Sundays to think about the church and the role of an elder. And then we'll be back to Luke. L- last week, we looked at the end of chapter 9. And in that section, Jesus explained the cost of following him, what it means to be one of his disciples. There was also an important bit in the last sec- in the section last week where Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. The, the end of chapter nine is, is essentially a hinge part of Luke's gospel. We're, we're all familiar with hinges. You know what a hinge does. You use hinges every day and you don't even realize it. A hinge allows a door to open and close. The, the end of chapter nine is, a, is the door closing on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Throughout the first nine chapters, Luke tells us about the things that Jesus does while he's around home. But at the end of chapter 9, it's also a a door opening on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus is on the move. He's on the road. He's making his way towards Jerusalem. He's making his way towards the cross. And on his way, he, he meets lots of different people. He teaches lots of different things. And he performs lots of different miracles. And Luke records 
some of the things he said and did to help us realize who Jesus really is. We're moving into chapter 10 this morning. And as I've already said, what Luke records here speaks to us about evangelism. We're covering verses 1 to 24, which is probably more than we would usually cover. But we're going to see three things. Jesus is teaching that, one, there's an urgent need for evangelism. Two, there's a solemn reality ahead. And three, there's true and lasting joy in him, only found in him. Let's look at what Jesus is teaching here. First of all, he's telling us that there's an urgent need for evangelism. Look at what we're told in verses 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's really important that we understand the first half of chapter 10 in the context of chapter 9. Now, that seems reasonably obvious. But just look back at the beginning of chapter 9. What does Jesus do in the first couple of verses in Luke 9? He sends out the 12 disciples. He commissions them to go and preach and heal. Last week we noted in passing that Jesus was rejected by a Samaritan village. So if you turn your eye over to verses 51 to 56 of chapter 9, so the end of the chapter, you'll see that Jesus is rejected and that James and John are incensed. They want to bring down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Jesus rebukes them, and then they move on. After sending out the 12, after the experience in Samaria, Jesus sends out a group of 72 disciples. They're given a job in verse 9. If you look at it, you'll see it. They're to heal, and they're to declare the nearness of the kingdom of God. The work of Jesus' kingdom was expanding at this point, but, but sending out 72 won't come near to meeting the need. You get the sense of that through what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 2. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Side application for us. If the disciples were told to pray for more workers, how much more should we be praying for more workers at the moment as well? In verses 3 to 12, Jesus gives the 72 instructions on how to go about their mission. With the day of judgment coming at an unknown time in the future, the task of spreading the message is extremely urgent. The sent ones can't afford to carry extra luggage. They have to rely on the Lord's provision. And there's no time for the sent ones to stop and chat along the road. What are we to make of Jesus' instructions in these verses? Well, simply this. They're not meant to be a step-by-step manual for an approach to modern missions. These instructions are for a specific place and time. So it's not disobedient for a missionary to bring a bag or suitcase to the place they're going. What's clear from Jesus, though, is that there's an urgency to spreading the message of salvation. Whether we're missionaries serving in a foreign country or whether we're local missionaries to our workplaces and our children, the task is urgent. There's an urgent need for evangelism. Now, I'm pretty sure that we're clear in the message. It never changes. The gospel never changes. But our culture changes quite quickly. Here's a basic summary of what has happened spiritually in the United Kingdom in the past 70 years. In 1954, Billy Graham came to the UK for the first time. He packed out stadiums, preached the cross, and thousands were converted. The basics were already in place for people. 
They knew God was the creator. They knew about sin and they were aware of Jesus. Billy Graham put it all together and people repented and believed. By the 1990s, so when I was growing up and when some of you were growing up, there was a change. There was a hardening against Christianity. There were blocks in the way of people coming to faith. Objections to Christianity had to be dealt with and removed before the gospel could gain a hearing. The blocks were usually, but not always, one, Christians are weird, two, Christianity is untrue, and three, Christianity is irrelevant. The challenge was to remove the blocks so that you could have the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus. Today, though, things are very different. Very different from 1954, very different from the 1990s. Today, people are on a totally different road. Our culture is now defined by tolerance and immorality. Culturally, we're so far away from biblical Christianity that people don't object to faith having engaged with it. They simply dismiss it. Jesus isn't on their agenda. He isn't an option to be considered. Now, what does that mean for our evangelism? There's an urgent need for us to tell people about Jesus. But how can we evangelize effectively in the place and time that God has placed us in? Well, witnessing takes time and effort. The days when you could go from zero to the gospel in a single conversation are not the norm. Pray for those kinds of opportunities, but, but don't be discouraged when they don't come. It's very rare for someone to meet a Christian, for them to come to a service, explore the Christian faith, and then become a Christian straight away. Re research suggests that when people put their faith in Christ, on average, it has taken two years from the point where they met a Christian who spoke to them about Jesus. And that time period is growing. It's growing longer than two years. Witnessing is a long-term commitment to invest in a relationship, to pray tirelessly, and to speak the gospel over and over again, patiently and persistently. Now, that shouldn't discourage us, but it should help us when it comes to our expectations about who will come to our outreach events. Evangelism is going to require a lot of prayer and a lot of hard work on our part. We can't match the world. Uh, we can't match what the world does. But we can think creatively about reaching our community with the gospel. There's an urgent need for evangelism. That's what Jesus is saying. There aren't enough workers. There aren't enough people taking Jesus seriously enough and sharing their faith with others. This is something for us to work on as a new session begins. Who is it that you're going to pray for this season? Who are you going to pray comes to church? Who are you going to ask to come to church? Who are you going to talk to about the gospel? Not your church, not your minister, not our new building, but the gospel. Who, who, who are you going to be praying for as September comes? There's an urgent need for evangelism, and that urgent need springs from the solemn reality that's ahead. What's our second point this morning? The solemn reality ahead. But back in 954 and 55, James and John want to bring down judgment on the Samaritans, but Jesus rebukes them. The two brothers badly misunderstand the nature of Jesus' mission. He has come to save those who reject him by dying in their place. In the face of rejection, Jesus and his disciples simply move on to the next village. That's not to say, however, that judgment has no place in Jesus' ministry. Look at what Jesus says in verses 10 to 12. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. 
Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus says that rejecting the message of the kingdom has terrible consequences. Wiping dust from your feet was a custom that Jews used, <clears throat> that Jews used to communicate their disdain when leaving a Gentile region. It was a warning sign of rejection and condemnation. When a town rejected the disciples that Jesus had sent, they were rejecting both him and the Father who sent him. And that's clear from verse 16. In verses 13 to 15, though, Jesus makes a series of shocking statements about the final day of judgment. Just look at what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. What Jesus says here is quite shocking. Jesus says on the final day of judgment, objects, uh, famous Old Testament objects of wrath like Sidon, Tyre, and, uh, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon will fare better than the Jewish towns that have rejected Jesus. The kingdom had come near to those cities and so rejecting the message was worse than even the worst Gentile rejection. The point is this. There's a solemn reality ahead. Judgment will come to all who reject Jesus. It's not the disciples' responsibility to make that judgment happen. Those who are sent out are to take the message of the kingdom with them, but the judgment is left to God and his timing. There are really two big applications that spring from this truth, that there's a solemn reality ahead. The first is is for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. Jesus warned people about the judgment to come. He talked about hell a lot. The reason he died was so that people wouldn't have to go there. The only way to get to hell is to trample over the cross of Christ. It's therefore loving for us, for believers, to warn people about hell. Let me read you a quote from someone called Penn Gillette. He isn't a Christian, but he's someone who understands that it's loving to warn people about judgment. Penn Gillette says this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. The first big application for, the, for those of us who know and love Jesus is that our willingness to share the gospel with others is a test of our love for them. Do we love people enough to explain the gospel to them? Everyone needs Jesus. We're all like grass. We might be flourishing now, but death is real. It doesn't always warn, of us, warn us of its arrival. And without Jesus, what lies beyond is terrible. Everyone needs to hear about him. Are you willing to have what you think might be an awkward conversation? Or are you prepared to sit and leave things as they are in the hope that one day the person that you know and love will change themselves? I, I'm not very experienced and I'm definitely not an expert in these things. 
But here's what I've found over the years. The people that you think are the hardest to the gospel are often the most open. And actually, people don't really mind talking about these things. Some people do and just won't engage. You've got to read the situation. But if this is true, and if Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, says that judgment is coming, then surely we should talk to people about it. If we don't, we're not being honest with people. We're not being straight with them. The second big application for you is if you're not a Christian. I've been reading a book called Act of Oblivion by Robert Harris recently. It's historical fiction and it's about the hunt for the regicides who killed King Charles I. It's an imaginative recreation of a true story. The period of history that it covers is the 1600s, the age of the Puritans. Puritan ministers feature a lot in the book and occasionally the author records a summary of a would-be sermon. Let me read you one. The minister preached a sermon that began with a quotation from Deuteronomy about the need to be ready to die at any moment. Sinners should consider of death that the thing is certain and only the time is uncertain and that they run an infinite hazard if they neglect making sure of an interest in Christ one day longer. The summary of the sermon is in an imaginative recreation of a true, true story. But the thing is, it's a pretty good sermon. Death is certain. The only thing that is uncertain is the time. And you're running an infinite hazard if you reject Christ one day longer. If you're not a Christian, you've got to realize that there's a solemn reality ahead. A solemn reality that you must be prepared for. What you've got to see and understand is that true and lasting joy is only found in Jesus. That's our final point this morning. Jesus is teaching that there's true and lasting joy found in him. Jesus sends out the 72 into a difficult situation. Verse 3 tells us that they're, they're going out like lambs into the midst of wolves. We, we might expect them to come back battered and bruised with their tails between their legs. But instead of encountering defeat and discouragement, they would experience Jesus' power. The 72 return in verse 17 and say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But notice what Luke says before that, though. The 72 returned with joy. They returned with joy. The joy of the disciples is easy to understand. Who, who wouldn't be excited to see such a display of God's power? Je Jesus encourages their joy, but locates it in a different foundation. Look at what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a real blessing to see the Lord working through you. It's a real blessing to grow in holiness and faithfulness. It's a reason to be thankful to God. But God has an even greater blessing for his people because he has written our names in heaven. That is to say, he has brought us into an unshakable relationship with himself that will be fully revealed in eternity. Now, nevertheless, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a great reminder to all of us who know and love the Lord Jesus not to put our hope in, in our service and in the way that God chooses to use us. Seasons of fruitfulness may come and go and the Lord will raise up other laborers after we're gone. If our identity and happiness is, is wrapped up in those things, we'll despair. If our identity, identity and happiness is, is wrapped up in anything else, actually, we'll despair. 
If our identity depends on how our exam results go, if our happiness depends on our career progression, we'll eventually find that those things disappoint us. We have a better source of joy. The promise of heaven has no peaks or valleys, and the joy of belonging to the Lord knows no season. There's true and lasting joy in Jesus. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Are you able to do that this morning? Are you able to rejoice rejoice because you know Christ, because you've trusted in Christ? The, the joy of knowing him far outweighs anything this world can offer. The, the joy the world offers is temporary and won't last. J- Jesus offers joy now in this life and joy forever in eternity. So that's the first half of Luke 10. All, all of our points link together like a chain. There's an urgent need for evangelism because there's a solemn reality ahead and true and lasting joy is only found in Jesus. Following Jesus is going to be costly. You could summarize these verses with that phrase. Following Jesus is going to be costly. We saw that last week and there's there's more cost this week. The the cost for us if we know Jesus is that there's an urgent need for us to have spiritual conversations with people who don't know him. Let let, let me push you again on this this morning, if you're a believer. Are are you prepared for life to be uncomfortable? Are you prepared to speak about your faith to people who have no faith? Now, here's the thing. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be available. Talking about Jesus spreading the message of the kingdom is the greatest work there is because it's a work that's eternally significant. What's going to matter most in 100 years' time? It's whether or not someone has trusted in Jesus. It's the greatest work, but it's also the hardest work. Sometimes we'll meet hostility, and sometimes it will be awkward. But it's the most exciting work too, because as you take a risk and talk about Jesus, you'll discover hunger for the gospel in surprising and thrilling places. The great news is that any Christian can do this job. I can do it, but you can do it as well. The minister isn't the only person who can do this. I'm not the only person in our church family who can do this, and I'm definitely not the most gifted. Any Christian can do this job because Jesus can work through anyone. Think of the disciples that he sent out. Simon Peter, he denied Jesus. Thomas, he doubted Jesus. Matthew, he was a tax collector, and he was a traitor among his own people. Simon the Zealot, he was a freedom fighter, an ancient terrorist. Is there anything positive we can say about any of those men? One thing, they were available. They weren't great, but they were ready to go. They didn't know everything, but they knew enough to tell people about Jesus, the man who has complete authority and overwhelming compassion, the one who is our ruler and rescuer. So are you ready to go this week? Are you going to pray for an opportunity to explain the gospel to someone? Are you willing to say that you're available? Let me close by pushing you in this. If you're not a believer, following Jesus is going to be costly. One of the barriers that you might have in coming when it comes to following Jesus is that you don't want to give up something. You think that whatever whatever it is you have to give up, if you give it up, your life will be miserable. Being a Christian is boring, or, or so you think. Well, whatever the barrier is, family, career, money, power, know that in the end, it will let you down. 
but whatever you're living for now will not get you into heaven. There's a solemn reality ahead. And if your hope is in something, anything other than Jesus, you're going to experience that solemn reality one day. But there's true and lasting joy in Jesus. And if you come to him today, you'll experience that joy. And if you want to know more about him, if you want to know more about what it means to trust him, keep reading Luke's gospel, or give me a ring, send me a text. I would love to speak to you and talk to you about these things. But know this, sinners should consider of death that the thing is certain and, the only, and only the time is uncertain and that they run an infinite hazard if they neglect making sure of an interest of Christ one day longer. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, this is a challenging passage for those of us who know and love you. It's a convicting passage because it highlights our failure to talk about the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd forgive us for the times when we haven't spoken of Jesus when we could have or when we should have. But we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would give us grace this week to explain the gospel simply to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Father, help us with this. We realize that all Christians are called to do this work. We pray that you'd help us as we seek to honor you and serve you. And we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Christ. We, we pray that they would see and know that there's a solemn reality ahead and that without Christ, that solemn reality will be experienced by them one day. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would continue to linger in our hearts through this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.